Asmodeus, from the Strange and Unusual podcast, a proud member of the Gunna Geek Network, just like the show you're listening to now. The opinions expressed are those of each individual host. Check out all the other podcasts at GunnaGeekNetwork.com and get ready because geekiness begins in three, two, one. Hey everybody, and welcome to another episode of Magic with Zuby. Today we're going to be discussing the rest of the chapters of the Amonkhet storyline that have been released so far. Uh, it's only been eight chapters, I've gone over the first two already, and we're going to discuss the other six. So before we begin, let's get some ads out of the way, and let's roll that clip. Well hey there, Zoe. Why the long face there, chum? I just want to order some magic cards, but the shipping was too expensive. Too expensive? Well, did you know if you go to LegitMTG.com, you can order any magic cards, and anything over $2 or more has free shipping. Wow, free shipping at LegitMTG.com. That's amazing. You heard that right, Zoe. Free shipping at LegitMTG.com with any order over $2 or more. Be sure to visit today and get the best deal on Magic Singles and Magic Sealed product available. Wow, that's amazing! So your father's a nerd. Unfortunately, there's no player's guide to raising a family. But this podcast is meant to be a family's guide to nerdism. Join us, Alec and Zuby, as we go in-depth as to what it's like to raising a family of nerdlings and the adventures and hardships of fatherhood. We dive deep into our favorite nerd topics and talk to you about how it's related to raising a family. You can find So Your Father's a Nerd on iTunes, Google Play, Stitcher, and TuneIn Radio. Man, I wish there were others who liked retro video games like me. Did I hear someone say retro video games? I heard it too, Matt. Well, if you're a fan of retro video games as well as gaming in general, you need to listen to the VCR Gaming Podcast. It's available on iTunes, Google Play, Stitcher, and TuneIn Radio. Oh god, my house! So before we begin, I would just like to say, when it comes to local game stores, there it really does have an effect on how you play Magic and why you want to continue playing Magic. Um, it's very noticeable when you go to a game store and you know you go there, you like the people there, and it makes it fun. And you, but you're still kind of like, eh, you know, I could do without coming here again. You know, that sort of thing. But then there's a huge difference when you go to a store and right away the owner makes you feel right at home and actually cares about what you're saying and, you know, wants to catch up, hasn't seen you in a while and actually makes you feel really welcome. And, you know, that's just a huge difference. And I'm sure a lot of you out there who are listening can understand what I'm talking about when it comes to, you know, a game store that it's good. But you're just sort of like, eh, you know, whatever to a game store that's like, wow, they put a lot of thought and care into wanting to run this business and wanting to keep it up and are willing to, you know, 
make a really good experience for the players there. And not just when it comes to magic, but all forms of gaming, you know, board gaming, uh, role playing and that sort of stuff. And, you know, it's, it's just really nice. And I'm very appreciative of seeing stores like that and going to stores like that. It sort of reignites your fire, your passion for not only magic, but just for those, that those types of gaming in general. Um, so I, I just recently experienced that. And, you know, as you tell from last week's episode, just really talking about, you know, being sort of disenfranchised with the magic community, especially the online community. And, you know, I still really feel that way. And I'm trying my best to stay off Twitter. I've been answering some messages been getting, and it's just, you know, I'm going to not be on social media as much as I still said, but you know, the local magic community, especially the one that I'm surrounding myself in, it has, you know, sort of reignited my passion for magic. And that's a good thing. Surrounding yourself with good people makes it, makes me more willing and apt to want to create keep creating a show for you all. So I really am really appreciative of that. So let's get right into it. The Omnicat storyline. Um, I think if just looking at my notes, cause every chapter that comes out, I've been making some notes for it. And just to briefly go over the notes of the first two one, first two chapters um, of impact and trust impact. I was not a fan of the way it was written in first person. And I know I've said this before, the way there that there's multiple authors of each chapter, it really goes to show when there's a really good author. And then when there's a not so great author, and especially when it goes from first person to third person, then back to first person can make it really, really confusing and just not a very good reading experience. Um, so first person was obviously or the first chapter was impact written in the first person did not enjoy it that much. Um, basically gate watch land down in Amonkhet. They fight some zombies and Oketra comes out and basically saves them. And yeah, it was Oketra, right? Cause I think it was, yeah, the white God and saves them and they find a city and then trust. It was written in third person. It was better written, but still kind of, eh, you know, it didn't really matter who wrote it. And that's where they meet Temet. They go to, what's the city called? Noctamon. Noctamon, I think. I'm going to butcher all these names. And, you know, they, they go in the city and they see, oh my gosh, the undead are like, you know, like, oh my gosh, being all undead servant-like. And then at the end of the story, they see a woman yelling in the streets saying that the hours are a lie. The, you know, everything's a lie. Every, everything's a lie, pretty much. And so that that's just a brief description of the first two stories. So let's get on with chapter three, The Writing on the Wall, written by Allison Lurs. So I think this is the chapter where we officially find out the city is called Noctamon. And it starts off with Chandra and actually, you know, it starts off with Nyssa awakening from a dream and the dead rising and the dead saying he took them. And the voice in the dream kept kept on talking about how the souls of the dead are protected and he most likely meaning bolus took them nissa wakes up and wants to find the woman who is being chased by the minotaurs and chandra goes out with her chandra mentions that she is hungry and a mummy suddenly comes in and brings them food chandra and nissa walk about noctamon and see everyone living training no one appears to be over 20 and they even see two children bench pressing which you know why they even mention that that's beyond me but whatever they notice the undead are cleaning up the streets painting everything and making everything look nice and clean nissa notes this is weird 
and Chandra agrees with her. Nissa is trying to understand the dead of Amonkhet and suddenly feels sick and goes to sit down. A mummy comes and gives Nissa a cup of water as they sit on a fountain. Nissa comments that she has had her fill of the cities and not used to being around people so much. Chandra asks if she is tired of the Gatewatch and Nissa responds yes and no. Nissa explains it is tough for her to have friends as she has been alone for a long period of her life and maintaining friendships is new to her. As the two approach Rona's monument, they notice a single sphinx watching some acolytes training. A voice says to them, you must be the travelers I have heard so much about. It turns out to be a woman in her mid-30s, a vizier, as you can tell, my, that was my best woman's voice that I did. And Temet has sent word to all the viziers about the Gatewatch. She mentions the Sphinxes have ta all taken a vow of silence until Bolas has returned, the god pharaoh. The vizier Hepatra tells the two about the anointed and how they are cared for and treated with respect. They are curious about the trials, and Hepatra tells them that the five gods would be happy to teach them about the trials and how the Gatewatch can do the trials as they return, as the return of the god pharaoh is only days away, or they can wait for the hours. Nissa asks what the hours are, the hours after the god pharaoh's return, the moment we have waited on for all of history. The hours will begin when the sun rests between the horns. I'd estimate any day now, Hepatra says. After speaking with Hepatra, the two want to find the woman from yesterday. They estimate Bolus's re return will occur in two days as they look up in the sun and where it stands in between the horns. Uh, as they started to walk off to find this woman, they find some glyphs on a wall and notice that Nicol Bolus's horns on them were added on. Nyssa concludes that Bolus didn't create this world, he corrupted it, similar to the Eldrazi. They round a corner and find some sarcophag sarcophagi i guess and when nissa was about to touch one gideon appeared with a cartouche around his neck and told them not to touch them oketra also appeared and spoke to nissa asking if she spoke with this world nissa replied that oketra's world is dying and afraid oketra's cat ears twitched in fear for a moment and she yells at nissa and chandra to not touch the sarcopha sarcophagi they are forbidden to be touched nissa realized how much this place and the gods meant to gideon Nissa noticed the cartouche around Oketra's neck was different from the acolytes they saw training earlier and asked what happened to the other three. Oketra responds she has no memory of before. Oketra asks Gideon to complete one of the trials and Nissa and Chandra are shocked he is doing the trials. Gideon wants to prove himself as he feels the gods are good at their core. Nissa tells Chandra that Bolas didn't create Amonkhet but corrupted it. They want to speak with Kefnet, the blue god, about this. Nissa hears in her mind about three forgotten gods and five altered memories. They decide to head back to their little house Temet offered them the day before. As far as the quality of writing goes for the writing on the wall by Alison Lurz, it was a nice touch. It was very refreshing to read compared to the first two chapters, which I thought, especially the first one, I did not enjoy at all. And the second one, while better in quality compared to the first, it was still kind of, it felt lacking and it felt very short as well, too. This story did bring us the revelation that Bolas, Nicol Bolas did not create the world but simply corrupted it and that there were possibly eight gods at one time and while three of them may have died or been in prison somewhere and the five gods, the others such as Oketra, do not remember the gods at all. And it, you can see that there was there's something there when Nyssa told Oketra about the other three gods, she sort of twitched in fear 
that there's something there, but it's being kept back. And as we know, Nicol Bolas being sort of a mind mage can, you know, erase people's memories or do, you know, manipulate them. There's something there that Oketra remembers from before Nicol Bolas, but doesn't remember now. So as I'd say, I probably give the running on the wall a good solid seven out of 10. Like I said, it was a better story compared to the first two and it did give us a little bit more exposition as to what exactly is going on on the plane of Amonkhet. So the next chapter is called Servants and focuses much on Liliana and her ambitions here in Amonkhet. It starts off with Liliana lounging about having undead mummies serve her food and fanning the breeze. Liliana thinks of Razaketh, one of the demons who holds the contract to her soul, and wants to find where he is and whether she can catch him by surprise. The Raven Man appears, asking her why is she sitting idly and not looking for Razaketh. The, the Raven Man continues to question her why is she wasting her time on the Gatewatch. He mentions how he helped Liliana in the past take command of the Chain Veil while she was eaten by the Sandworm. Jace arrives to see Liliana. They discuss how the undead in the city must be under a strong magic and the undead outside of the city are sort of a sort of an ambient necromancy. One of Liliana's shades come, comes and says it found Razaketh. Liliana and Jace decide to leave together and Liliana will not tell Jace what she is doing. They come to a building and go in it. They see mummies carrying dead bodies. They go down to a room and see mummies creating mummies. One of the dead bodies began to stir before it was fully wrapped. It thrashed and shuddered, and the wrapping process clattered to a halt. It was the first thing they'd seen that wasn't efficient and orderly, and they paused to watch. There was no necromancy, or there, there was no necromancer beside herself. Essentially, no necromancy, just an upwelling of death magic that seemed to come from everywhere. The mummies overseeing the wrapping process approached the rogue corpse and held it down, while another approached with a large metal plate, a cartouche. They pressed the cartouche onto the into place on the body's chest, and the corpse laid still. Jason and Liliana find a mur mural, and it depicts Razaketh being the final test for the initiates. Jace finds out Liliana only came here to kill Razaketh, and all of a sudden the mummies stop their work and stop start saying Liliana. The mummies attack Jason and Liliana. Liliana can't control any of the mummies, and she rips off one of the cartouches, as she, and as soon as she does, the mummy instantly dies. Temet appears, saying, you, you all really are outsiders. Temet found out the Gatewatch was not from Amonkhet at all, from Kefnet, the blue god, and Jace mind-controlled Temet to have the mummies release them and make a run for it. They reach outside and decide to find the others from the Gatewatch. So this chapter was written by Kelly Diggs and the I would have to say the writing the quality of writing is not as good as chapter 3 was and while it wasn't completely bad compared to chapters 1 or 2 it just was not a very interesting chapter. It we did find out what Razaketh is doing. He is helping prepare the dead and actually raising the dead to be the obedient servants that they are and but still, a lot of it... Oh, and it was cool to see the Raven Man again. That that was another thing that was really cool. And asking why is she even wasting time on the Gatewatch. And that we found out that the Raven Man controlled Liliana. Or helped her in the past take command of the Chain Veil while she was eaten by the Sandworm. So, much of the story was written in third person point of view. and But a lot of it did take place in Liliana's mind a lot of the time. So, if I had to... 
I guess, rate it here. I'd probably give it a good 6 out of 10. Um, it was a rather short story, and it was it was okay. It wasn't that great. It felt like not a lot happened. We did find a little bit more world-building elements, such as what how the, the anointed, I think their name, become the anointed, and wh- how they become so subservient is because of all the cartouches they wear around their necks. And it, that was interesting to see or interesting to read about. But other than that, the story didn't really do much and it felt like it didn't go anywhere that much. I mean, it just really talked about Liliana's intentions for Amonkhet and then that's about it. So like I said, I'd give it a good solid 6 out of 10. And yeah, let's go on to the next chapter here. The next chapter in this Amonkhet storyline is called The Hand That Moves, written by Ken Troop. First line of the story right here that was kind of confusing a little bit was Nyssa wandered through empty streets, meandering through hell. And it was just kind of confusing him. He's like, what does this even mean exactly? And it just suddenly, and this this is where it gets a little bit confusing because it seems like the way one author ends a story, especially Nyssa and Chandra, all of a sudden it picks up at a different time where I thought with the end of Nyssa, with that one chapter with Nyssa, Nyssa and Chandra were heading back home. So, and now Nyssa's just wandering through the streets by herself. Okay, whatever. This is one thing, this is a gripe that I have with this magic story. So, um, not not just this one, but just the writing in general. It, it can be frustrating and confusing, especially when you follow it closely. Um, so, the story starts off, Nyssa's walking towards Kefnet's temple and can feel the ley lines crumbling around her. She sees a beautiful city but feels the corruption of the plane. She gets to the temple and saw and sees Kefnet's statue and walks in. She sees a young man reading a book and asks to speak with Kefnet. The young man, thinking Nyssa was initiate, tells her to be quiet but quick, quickly realizes she is not from here. The man begins to meditate and then tells Nyssa she can attend the trial of knowledge. Nyssa ran towards the room with the blue light and the man sought to stop her but she threw him up against a wall and he uttered, No, you are not. The scene changes to an angel flying in Amonkhet sky and snakes tumbling out of its eyes. The angel saying, I can do whatever I want, anything at all. Remember that. Nyssa wakes up in a room on a cot trapped in her nightmares. Sounds like a trial of knowledge set by Kefnet. Nyssa manages to break free of it, breaks free of it and sees a room with a blue canvas. And I'm going to read a comment made on Reddit at the time that kind of explained what some of the visions she saw during that. And if you want to read what the visions were, I'd suggest reading the story. It, it does get a little bit confusing. Um, that This was a major complaint I had with this story was even the, the visions that were talked about were very, very confusing and just sort of, and it felt like it went way too fast for it. So the comment reads, some of the imagery seems obvious to me, but other bits are very vague right now. The shadow is Bolas. The eight stars are the original gods. Three are killed and become malevolent entities. Five are remade in Bolas's image. Next, we see mummies mining the ore in stone quarry. This ties in with a later vision. Giants covered in metallic blue. We also see children being consumed by the desert. I've no idea about the faceless man. Perhaps a metaphor for someone losing their identity. Jace gets mind wiped. Clean face clock. Or perhaps... Or perhaps Gideon becomes disillusioned with the gods. 
I suppose the black line is Bolas's web of schemes that stretches across the multiverse. The gold disc are the suns, and when they meet, they crack open. Bolas is likely inside. The fizzling torch, broken clock, mummified head, split tree, and shattered shield represents the different members of the Gatewatch, presumably having taken a beating. The fallen dragon is a confusing one. Is this Bolas ascending to Earth or a defeated Bolas? Is it even Bolas at all? Perhaps Ugin bails out, bails the Gatewatch out at the cost of his own life. Now, the giants I mentioned earlier, they look to be made of that ore Bolas has the mummies mining. Was this the reason Tezzeret was on Kaladesh? It always felt like dumb luck he stumbled upon Rashmi's portal. But if Bolas wanted robot schematics, then Tezzeret was certainly in the right place. Lastly, the destruction of the world. I guess we didn't need a prophecy to figure that's happening in the next set. After Nyssa breaks free of the vision, she meets Kefnet. Kefnet is intent on destroying her. Nyssa mana weaves her way through the ley lines and is able to tap into Kefnet's mind and change, change his thoughts on destroying her. Instead, she passes the trial of knowledge and walks out the temple. So that is the end of that story. Like I said, the overall writing was pretty confusing and it didn't feel didn't feel very cohesive in the sense of it felt like especially the visions were very, very, um, very short and just more like what the heck is going on here? And it just overall not a very good chapter was not very impressed with it. And yeah, I'd probably have to give this story a four out of 10. And once again, it felt like nothing really happened. Um, yeah, Nissa sees a bunch of visions, which yeah, that's cool and all, but, and she meets Kefnet, and like I said, once again, nothing really happened here. And at least we find out now, maybe this is how Nyssa gets her blue mana in terms of her Planeswalker card where she becomes Simic. But even then, that's not really mentioned here. It doesn't really describe it. But what do I know? Um, like I said, what did I say? A 4 out of 10? Yeah, I'm going to give this a 4 out of 10. Whatever I said earlier, forget that. It was 4 out of 10. Not impressed with it. Um, yeah, it was not very good at all. So the sixth chapter of the Amonkhet storyline is called Brazen, and it's once again written by Michael Yachow, and I'm not a fan of his first-person point-of-view work. And let me just say, before I get into what the chapter is about, if this was the first chapter you were reading, you'd have no idea who the author is talking about, because it's completely written in the first person. And while it may seem obvious at first to some people, it really should have been written in third person to begin with. And I, I just have to say that I'm not a fan of first person, especially when the authors can't decide whether they want first person or third person point of view. So the story starts off with Gideon falling behind Oketra to another trial. And Gideon thinks of Chandra and Nissa's mistrust and how it is nagging him. Thinks this is how it should be when watching the people bow before the gods and Oketra bows back. At this point, Gideon has passed two trials so far. Oketra takes Gideon to a party of sorts and introduces him to some initiates. He meets Dejiro of the Ta-Krop. Oketra took Gideon to Bantu's trial and he is to do it with the Ta initiates. Dejiro and Gideon have a sparring match and Dejiro gets Gideon on his back. Dejiro brings Gideon to meet the other initiates in his crop. They ask how Gideon passed the trials and where his crop is. Dejiro explains Gideon is replacing one of Dejiro's crop who they lost in a trial. Maris, one of the initiates, mentions Samet, the initiate they lost, and Dejiro scolds, and we do not mention the lost. A small argument ensues between Dejiro and Maris. Samet was not killed, but was a dissenter, and dissenters have no place in the afterlife. 
Bantu appears and the feeling of pride and power surge up in everyone. Bantu asks who will compete in the trial. None are born strong and Gideon speaks up, not even the gods. Bantu names the Takrop to be next to take the trial. They celebrate that night and awake next morning to begin the trial of Bantu. They go to Bantu's pyramid and they come across a room with a pool of filth and see a crank in the middle of it. They send an initiate named Dedi to investigate. Or Didi. Or Didi. I don't know how to pronounce this name. It's a really weird name. D-E-D-I. Dedi wades in the pool to move the crank and a bridge comes down. As he is coming back out of the pool, he screams. More sludge starts to pour in the room and Dedi's skin starts boiling off. The others run across the bridge and the door behind them slams shut and they hear Dedi screaming until he dies. Gideon wants to go back and tries to save him and they tell Gideon to press on but and that he dishonors Dedi by lingering. The next room they enter has an amet in the center, a demon, a soul devourer. A battle ensues and they lose two more initiates. Gideon found it found it to be impossibly strong and his Sorel could not pierce it nor his strength move it. And Avon distracts the Amet long enough to let everyone go ahead. The next room has bladed pendulum as and as each initiate crosses it, it becomes faster. Dejiro tells Gideon he is being dishonorable to those who died as each death is glorious to them. They are down to 16 initiates as they pass the bladed room. Gideon cheats by going invincible to make it across the blades, a.k.a. he unleashes his invincible. The next room, four of the initiates have to stand on pillars to have them open the door. As Gideon, DeGiro, and the rest pass through, they hear the Amet come in and kill the four initiates. They are now down to 12. The story skips ahead to about a few hours later, and they come across to Bantu and the three viziers, and they are down to nine. Bantu says to pass the trial, she needs a heart for each initiate, and that their numbers are too high. Fighting ensues. Uh, four initiates give a heart to Bantu. Gideon cheats and becomes invincible again. <laughs> I'm just reading my notes here, folks. And swims through the poisonous snakes in the water, and Gideon loses faith in the Amonkhet gods. Now his ambition is clear, is to stop Nicobolus. So while the story overall was not a fan of the first person view, I was a fan of this whole trial and how cool it was that in order to pass through each initiate, not each one, but an initiate had to realize their place and purpose and either let themselves die or distract a monster long enough to, you know, let the others get through. And it was just really interesting to see. And it was interesting to see Gideon get frustrated and want to save everybody. But he is, in a way, dishonoring their culture because this is how they've always done it, according to what everyone says. And who knows how long this culture actually has been around. So while I was still not a fan of the first-person view, I thought it was very enjoyable. It was a very enjoyable story. And I... I do recommend, I, I definitely recommend, you know, people reading this if they're at least interested in seeing how the trial was. Um, if I had to rate it, I'd rate it a good 8 out of 10. It was definitely, like I said, enjoyable. Not a fan of the first person, but it was good. It was a good story. It was interesting seeing a trial go on and see how the people realize that, hey, some of, some of us have got to die for others to attain that glorious afterlife. So we're coming close to the end here. We've only got two chapters to go, and if you're keeping on listening now, I appreciate it. 
it seems like you like to listen to me ramble. So let's get on with chapter seven. Chapter seven is Trespass, once again written by Michael Yachow. And this time it's actually written in third person point of view. And you know what? He should keep writing it in third person point of view because he's not a bad writer when it comes to third person. I think it's very enjoyable. If I had to compare chapter seven to chapter one, chapter one is absolute trash that he wrote. And this chapter seven is way better than compar- comparatively to chapter one. Uh, chapter six, which was also written by him with the Gideon trial, it was it was good. I w- was enjoying it. It was the highest rated chapter I've had so far in this whole um, story here. And as I was saying, chapter seven is trespass. It starts off with three 12-year-olds are chosen for the talk crop. It is Noct, which is an Avon, and Semet, and DeJuro. So this story takes place in the past in Amonkhet. So before the Gatewatch got here. So as the three friends are playing around, they all tell each other that they have a secret and that Noct is actually a mage and can control the water and he showcases it to be so. And then Samet tells him that she's discovered some old glyphs by Hazaret's temple and they're showing forgotten poses and she sort of displays it for the two and shows them, hey, you know, look at these kind of cool fighting poses. And then Dejiru actually discovered a hole in the Hekma. The Hekma is the uh, crap, the barrier that protects Naktamun from the outside, from all the crazy zombies out there. So the trio, trio decide to venture into the outer wasteland. And they describe they discover glyphs describing Nicobolus as a trespasser, which Dejiro decides to just completely say, "Hey, I don't believe in this." And Noct and Summit are just really taken aback, like, "Oh man, this is crazy." Um, as they're out there, uh, they do come across some zombies and they start attacking them. They're holed up in that little temple that where they discovered the glyphs, and then Noct decides to create a diversion to try to get the zombies away from the other two. And then a Grim Strider comes and attacks the children as well. And the Grim Strider just basically kills Noct in front of them. So Semet and Dejiru make a run for it back to Noctamun. And after that, uh, Samet begins to question Amonkhet about why would why would there be glyphs describing Nicobolus as, or the God Pharaoh, I should say, as a trespasser? And Dejiro just has a stronger faith in the gods that that they were the ones that came back and you know survived the wastelands out there, and and that Dejiro will honor Nock's sacrifice for what he did. Uh, as they grow up, uh, as I mentioned before, Dejiro has stronger faith in the gods and Samet begins to question Amiket and finally finds more proof in Bantu's monument that Bolas is a malevolent force. Samet presumably leaves Bantu's monument after that and caused the rucket that happened in chapter two that the Gatewatch witness. And that is basically the end of the story. It is a pretty short story. Um, it does at least describe what happens or how or what happened with Samet and how she became a dissenter. And that Dejiru just has more faith in the gods more than ever. And so if I had to rate it, I'd probably give it a maybe six to seven out of ten. I don't know, maybe a six and a half. It was interesting to see especially Samet's backstory and how she became to be how she is now 
in terms of the story. And it was, as, as I said before, especially with Dejiro too, uh, who we met in the previous chapter and yeah. So let's go on to the last chapter here. So the one thing that was interesting with this last chapter here before the hours of devastation, uh, picks up is that this chapter was written by both Douglas Bayer and Allison Lurz. Um, very interesting, and it was also a pretty good story, too. So it starts off with Samet escaped the guards in the earlier chapter and has been hiding in an old embalming chamber. She sends word to Dejiro to meet with her. She tells Dejiro not to do the final trial, that Bolas is a liar and a trespass, and his death is for nothing. Dejiro is notably unimpressed and tells her he is not going to throw his life's work away. Samet goes to visit Hazaret in a desperate effort to get her to spare Dejiro's life. Hazaret is confused about why she would deny her friend the honor of a glorious death. She ends up telling Hazaret about how she knows Bolas brainwashed, has brainwashed the gods. Angered by this, Hazaret has Samet locked up as a dissenter. She chooses the final trial to be Dejiro's crop versus dissenters. Samet has been locked in the sarcophagi for a few hours when she is rescued by Chandra and Gideon who were looking for her. The rest of the Gatewatch turn up and they share what they know about Bolas. Each shares what they have learned on Amon Ket. That there were more gods, that the early trials are a corpse factory, although Gideon doesn't understand why the last trial is different, and that Liliana's third demon is here. The group feels betrayed about Liliana's confession and more betrayed that Jace knew and was hiding it. They begin to argue, but Samet stops them and tells them to get their shit together. That No shit, that's what she basically does it's at this time the gods show up to escort the dissenters to the final trial the gatewatch and samet wake up in the middle of hazaret's arena they have cartouches on which stop their magic and prevent prevent them from talking nissa is able to weaken the effects with ley line powers samet rushes over to, to dejiro to help him fight dejiro prays to Hazaret and with his final pair asks that Samet be given the honor of a worthy death beside him. Dejiro lands a blow against Gideon who without his powers is cut. Dejiro is the last initiate standing as the other three were killed by the Gatewatch and approaches Hazaret. Hazaret asks why he isn't killing the Gatewatch and he tells her that a death in the trial of zeal is reserved for the worthy, not dissenters. She accepts this and invites him to die. As Hazaret lunges forward, Samet dashes over to push Dejira out of the way and takes the blow herself. Only she doesn't, as Gideon, now with his powers back, take the blow instead. Dejiro is pissed off that he has been denied his death. Hazaret tells him that time's up, the hour has begun, and that he missed his chance. The gods leave to meet Bolas at the gate of, to the afterlife. Dejiro hopes Bolas will find him worthy personally and rushes over to the gate too. Samet and the Gatewatch decided they need to do everything they can to make sure the, city and survive the, the citizens survive the hours and head out of the arena. Gideon lags behind in thought. When he blocked the spear, Hazaret spoke to him telepathically. She told him that I am neither the first nor the last immortal whom you will cross. Cursed is the man who forgets his own past, for I see your death, Kithian Eora. You are no god. So, and also, I forgot to mention one thing that was pretty funny in the fight. That in the fight, uh, Nyssa basically picks up Jace and throws him at one of the um, people they fight at one of the crop initiates. Uh, other than that, this chapter was the final chapter in the first part of the Amonkhet storyline. And it was the one thing that was a little confusing where um, the Gatewatch just automatically show up and release Samet. And it was just sort of, it just felt very haphazard. Um, 
But it was interesting to see the fight and that we're now at the point where, oh man, Bolas is going to show up. What's going to happen now? It did end with a really nice cliffhanger. Uh, it was not, it was, the writing was pretty decent. It was pretty good. And I'd have to say, I'd have to give it a good solid seven out of 10. And it does make me want to keep reading and read the next chapter and find out what's going to happen now that Nicobolus is coming. And like I said, that that's the one thing this chapter does well is it leaves a good cliffhanger where you're wanting to know what happens. So it did its job well. So if you stuck through me with this journey of talking about the Amonkhet storyline, uh, thank you for that. I do plan on doing the other chapters. I may do what I did before for this episode where I just read them all, you know, write notes because I've been writing notes for each one, just basically about a little thing of what happened, how I felt about the story, sort of stuff like that. And um, really enjoy doing it. And I like talking about it too, because as I mentioned before, I want to start talking about the magic storylines as well, because I feel they're also imperative and integral to Magic the Gathering, even though it is a card game. It's really cool that when you see some of these cards, especially the Amonkhet cards, you're like, oh, cool, that happened in this chapter, you know, or, oh, hey, you know, the, what the way one of these spells happen in the card, hey, that's kind of what happened in chapter six, you know, something like that. That's where it makes you feel closer to the card game as well. So I may just have another episode reserved for the rest of the Amonkhet storyline, depending on how many chapters it is. Um, so yeah, if you guys enjoyed this, uh, you can reach out to me at MagicWizubi on Twitter, uh, Facebook.com slash MagicWizubi. You can also email me at Magic, or no, MTGZubi at gmail.com. Uh, you know, you can find my podcast on iTunes, Google Play, Stitcher, TuneIn Radio. It's also on YouTube and vid.me. If you like listening to your podcast on video for whatever reason, it's there. And yeah, so like I said, thank you for listening and hope you enjoyed the show and have a great one, guys. All right. All right.